Hello, everybody. Welcome to the latest and greatest episode of Inside the Hexagon. I am your host, as always, Phil Lanides, and I want to thank you for taking the time to join us for today's show. On the episode today, we have Frank Trigg, UFC Hall of Famer, multi-time MMA champion. I mean, just one of the one of the guys that I loved watching fight and loved watching promote a fight in the 2000s. I mean, just an incredible, incredible fighter, and, and he has gone on to do so much besides uh, just fighting within the cage. Uh, I mean, he's a commentator. He's now an MMA referee. Uh, he's done movie and, and, and TV film stunt work. I mean, pro wrestling. Apparently, he's into scuba diving and sailing. I wasn't even aware of that. And I, in the interview, I jokingly talked about getting licensed to, to be a minister. Maybe we should just add that. And he said he actually was for a while. So we get into a ton. I did want to mention, he mentions a, a name in here, and it, it actually took me a while to catch who he was talking about, but he's talking about Hinato Charuto Verissimo, which is somebody that Frank beat right before his rematch with with uh, Matt Hughes in the UFC, and he actually delves into that uh, a fair amount. So you're going to hear Charuto. That's who he's talking about, just in case you missed that. Uh, but there's so much that we get into in this interview. So without further ado, let's get to it. All right, on the line with us, we have amateur wrestling champion, multi-time MMA champion, commentator, referee, stuntman, I mean, kind of everything. Uh, Frank Trigg, welcome to the show. You forgot uh, boat captain and uh, uh, scuba instructor. <laughs> my, my apologies. <laughs> you, you send me the certification for those and I'll add them on. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, but thanks for being on. I, I really, I want to jump right into your career. We're going to be obviously, you know, the show is about going back through the history of Strike Force, and you had a stopover in there, but obviously your career is much, much, much more than that. So I want to talk a little bit about the rest of your career and then we'll, we'll zero in on, on strike force, but let's talk about your formative years, you know, state wrestling champion in New York before entering the collegiate ra- collegiate ranks. You did very, very well, became an Olympic trials finals in 2000, but a lot of people don't realize that you actually made your pro MMA do- debut all the way back in 97. I mean, you had this strong background in judo. What, what drew you to MMA, even as you were building your amateur wrestling career? I mean, <clears throat> so I mean the short the short version is money. I mean that's that's the short version. Uh, okay, all right. Because you know your your assistant coaching at a university. I was at the University of Oklahoma. And I was one of the I was like the second assistant, so it wasn't the the head assistant. So it was a lot less. It was only twelve hundred bucks a month you got paid. And then when you're trying to make a world team or Olympic team, they pay for the guys that are, that are number one, number two, number three. So if you, if you are the best in the weight class, the second best, the third best, they're going to pay for you to travel overseas, right? Okay. Anybody under that, you have to kind of pay for yourself. And it, it was it was sometimes 50%, sometimes you only pay 40%, but it was still significant when you, when you barely make enough money to survive. So I had to find some way to raise money to go overseas to compete, okay? So I would be able to go with these, with these other guys that competed like you know, uh, Tehran, Iran, or, or go to, to World Club Poland, or, you know, Istanbul, Turkey, and, and wrestle. To do this, I had to pay my way, right? Part of it, at least, you know, so part of the flight, part of the hotel, part of the food, you know, all that stuff. So I really just started to fight because I needed money to pay for that. I mean, that's honestly how I got in MMA. Okay. All right. Well, I mean, regardless of the reasoning, you experienced a, a lot of success in MMA. You early on, you fought for and won titles, competed in Pride FC that you know, an early, early stage of that company. And then you earned a, t- a UFC title shot against Matt Hughes in your octagon debut at UFC 45 in 2003. Now, coming in on a title shot, you don't really see that happen very often anymore. That, that's a, a lot of pressure for somebody that's coming into the, you know, the big stage, so to speak. 
did you, even though you'd had pride experience, you'd fought on some big stages. Did you feel like you were ready for that? Was that something you wanted? You right. Remember 2003, the UFC was second. They went to biggest. Yeah, that's true. Pride, it wasn't yeah, like pride I, was, I wasn't yeah, walking into right. somebody that, that now has four fights a month. You know, true. I was walking into a, to an organization that was only throwing eight fights a year. The reason why I wanted to fight in the UFC is because it's domestic. I was doing most of my fighting overseas and it, right. and it was like, it was, it was nice. It's great to go to Japan and fight and the money's great. But no one in America knows who you are. No one, no one. So you, you, for people to see Pride back then, they actually had to wait at Blockbuster Video for the videotape. Oh to yeah, I was, I was one of them. I was one of them. So it's like there was no live TV, there was no pay per views, there was none of this stuff going on like it was then. So a title shot coming into UFC just kind of made sense because Matt Hughes at the time had already cleaned out the division twice. Um, I already beat uh, uh, Dennis Hallman, who'd already beat him, right? So now it was like this game of like, oh, I must be pretty good because I beat the guy to beat the guy, you know. And then, but and then, but the pressure coming into the UFC wasn't like it was now, it, at all. Like there was maybe six people in media row. There might be three thousand people, four thousand people in the stands. Right, right. When I fought in Pride, it was thirty-two thousand. You know, you're like it, it's it's normal. Like for a wrestler, it's normal to have small. You know, everyone watches. Like if you watch uh, uh, the Worlds or the Olympics for wrestling, you'll see like the crowds are full, because internationally, the number one sport in Iran and Turkey is wrestling. That, that's, that's the number one sport, right? So everybody watches wrestling in those countries. Then you expand out to being the world of the Olympics. You're like, oh, the stands are full. People just assume the stands are full all the time. You know, it's getting better now because of the UFC. Wrestling is getting a lot more pull because of the UFC, because you get guys like Ben Askren, a great wrestling champ, came over. And, uh, of course, then they start paying attention like Penn State, and, and, you're, and you're watching how good they're doing now in Minnesota and Iowa. And you're watching all these programs, and all these guys potentially can make a jump into MMA. So you have that pull now but back then there wasn't that much of a pull there really wasn't that that big of a deal so when you're watching the sport back then you know you, speaking about wrestling now you might have geez i mean i remember i remember home duels oklahoma state versus ou at the field house in in norman it'd be like you know this is the biggest wrestling rivalry of uh, all time say, that's a massive rivalry and yeah we're talking maybe 1500 1800 people jeez you know, Gather Iber Arena, Oklahoma State would hold more, so it'd be more, but it really, it wasn't like, oh my gosh, a football stadium sold out, like you would see sometimes for Iowa matches. Like, we never, we never had that really, right? So it was always small bears. So when you go to these small places and fight, we're always used to fighting in front of small places. We knew that there really wasn't going to be that much of a crowd, so it really wasn't that big of a deal back then. Now, obviously, you're like, you walk in, and, and you know, you walk into, to, uh, when there was crowds, obviously, we're talking right. back when there were crowds allowed, you walk in sometimes and, and do a, a UFC match, in the beginning, the first fight of the night, which I'm that guy, like if I'm not working the fight as a ref or a judge, I'm at the fight, I'm there for the first fight anyway. I want to see every single fight. When I'm at right. home, I watch every single fight. Right? It doesn't matter to me who, what, what the ranking is, what the, the mismatch of the scoring is or the mismatch of the, of the matchmaking is. I want to see the fight because you never know. That's why fighting is so, so great because you never know what the hell is going to happen. No matter what, no matter what you think you know, you don't know until the fight's over. Right. So I'm there and like and the UFC card, sometimes there's three thousand people there at at three o'clock right. watching the first right. fight. Right. Like, this is this is nuts now. Like it's completely changed. Like it's it's a totally different game. So going into forty five, you know, in two thousand three wasn't really was just the next step. It was just the next guy I had to fight. It wasn't really the big of a deal. Okay. You know? All right, fair enough. And I'll mention I when I was traveling for UFC events and that sort of thing, I I would be there at the first one because I, you know, if I if I had gotten credentialed as a press member or whatever, I felt like I owed it to them. But if I had paid my way, I was there first because I wanted, like, I wanted every 
you know, every dollar, every cent's worth, you know what I'm saying? So I don't want to miss something and feel like I, you know, paid for nothing, but anyways, but you know, obviously a big, you know, even though you lost, it was a big time um, fight for sure. And now actually makes sense because you only fought two times in between that and then your rematch, which was, uh, you know, the first fight, 2003 rematch, 2005, you only fought two times, but like you said, that's because they weren't doing that many events back then. So that, you know, that yeah, like sense, but... I had to, I had to create a whole character just to be able to get on the card. They didn't, they didn't want me on, they didn't want me to fight Matt again. They were kind of pushing it off, right? They really wanted it. Want, and they were like, okay, we'll give you Trudeau who almost beat Matt. And, and really, if you look, look back at the fight, he beat Matt. And then, I mean, under, under t- today's judging. You know, if you rejudge the fight to underneath today's standards, Matt loses and Churro's the champ. But Matt wins that fight. Like, okay, you can fight Churro. If you beat him, then you can go on and we'll, we'll give you a title shot. So it was like a weird little situation where they really didn't want me to want to do anything. So I, I actually didn't want me to be in the fight. So I had to, like, I had to create a character to get enough draw from fans back on the on the old uh, uh, Miss Martial Arts forums. Because that was basically all you had back then was, was right, even, the, I mean, Churro was just starting. Right. So before the all those. Right. that you had to talk enough noise to make people want to have you on this card. And that's the one great thing about MMA, especially MMA in the, in the U.S. It's still very fan-driven. Even now, it's still very fan-driven. The fans demand for a fight to happen. Enough people talk about it. That fight will happen. And, and that's that's really what it is. The rankings go out the window. Championship belts go out the window. Timelines go out the window. They want to see these two guys fight. People are going to say stuff. So I just started talking as much noise, and, and I took that Muhammad Ali style of, of of which is basically a pro wrestling style of promoting a fight just to try to get more fights because if there's eight fights a year and you're only fighting once a year you can't live you can't you can't you gotta have a full-time job you have to do something else there's no way to survive as a a fighter so that was kind of the game i did and that got me pushed into the second fight which then became one of dana's favorite fights of all time and still in the race and that's the fight that got me in the hall of fame yeah, it was so you you have no idea what I was going to ask next, but that was that was pretty much you almost answered my next question was you get this rematch and the crowd in that bout like I in preparation for this I watched one and two like to just within just the last half hour just to kind of and you could hear the difference in the crowd. And obviously it's a couple of years later so the crowd was bigger and that sort of thing. But when he took you down you know, he did the slam takedown. That was one of the loudest reactions I've ever heard in MMA. And people go, oh yeah, Matt Hughes did that. But to me, what stood out to me was you had built yourself, this character, as you said, you had built yourself up as this heel of sorts and made the fans care about the fight. And that's why they reacted like they did when Hughes got that slam takedown. To me, yeah, it was impressive they got the slam takedown, but I was actually more impressed. And in retrospect, I'm more impressed that you built up this character enough to make the fans and you sold the fight well enough to where people reacted like that, which is, that's a whole pro wrestling thing. And, and we're going to talk about that in a second, but I've talked with Frank Shamrock on this podcast about the ability to sell a fight in MMA and why that's so important. You kind of answered this question, but maybe you can kind of expound on it a little bit more, uh, more. How important is the ability to sell a fight in MMA? And, and is, is that something we see today or is the machine just so big? That's not as important. Like what, what are your thoughts on it even today? Well, I mean, for as good as Conor McGregor is as a fighter, that's not his fighting is not his best talent. His best talent is getting in your head before the fight even starts. Right. The trash talk, the commotion, the red painting night, him talking about the fight. That's what the real, the real thing. Chael Sonnen, as a, as a, as a fighter. Oh my God. He was boring. He was boring. He's like one of the worst fighters. I mean, other than taking Edison Silva all the way down to the the last 15 seconds in a five round fight and beating the crap out of him and getting caught in a triangle, him just sticking with that style of wrestling kind of showed that, you know, if you're a great striker, you should be a great wrestler to stop the guy. 
that's really his claim to fame. Like that, and that's really what he built his career on after that was just that being able to go that 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 long with with a guy at the time was considered one of the best of all time, you know, in Anderson Silva. It was all talk. It's all trash talk. That's the game. I mean, the reality of it is the way our sport has developed, the guy that has all the power is the guy to get the fans to follow and pay attention to him, buy his merchandise and talk about him, either positive or negatively online. You can be negative. Everyone loves Col- uh, Colby Covington, right? Because they want to hate him. It makes it right. very easy. He makes it very easy to hate him. Right. But everybody pays attention to his fights. They want to see him fight. They want to see him do stuff. Right. And then, then you got Gabe Brad. He comes out with three, you know, three pieces and, and a drink or whatever it is, you know, whatever right. his, his right. saying was there for a second. Right. And you're like, okay, I want to see this. So he, he t- trash talks a different way. Everybody's got their own little style of trash talking, but it's very important in these fights today. And it's very important if you want to keep the title. It's very important if you want to stay on top of the game, because the reality of it is the guys that sell the most pay-per-views, the guy's the best trash talker, not the best fighter. Conor right. McGregor is not the best fighter in the UFC, but he is the best. He does have to mix the most amount of money in the UFC because he sells the most amount of pay-per-views because he knows how to trash talk. He knows how to break you before you've even made weight. The fight's already over and you haven't made weight yet. That's how good he is at what he does. Well, you were definitely one of the uh, one of the early on guys that was able to capture that and and like I said, build up that character and and you know made money off it. So, uh, in your career, you continue to compete in big fights. You take on guys like GSP, Carlos Condit, uh, Jason Mayhem Miller, Kazuo Masaki, Rob Bilal, a bunch of guys like that. Then you sign this fight, this this deal to fight with Strikeforce, and I don't know the official contract, but it was it ended up being a one off. So I, I'm curious about kind of how that deal came together. If you remember, why was it only for one fight? And, and why did you end uh, up I not have going no back? Idea. I have no, honestly, I have no idea. Okay. Like the, that management takes care of that. Like I'm not, that's the thing about your team. You have to let your team do what the team does. So if you have a strength and conditioning coach, you gotta let him run strength and conditioning. And don't keep asking him what the next stage is. Your jiu-jitsu coach handles your jiu-jitsu. You don't keep asking him where we're going, what we're doing. You know, it's, you just kind of let it handle. And back then I let my manager handle everything. We got the next fight was in strike force. So I fought in strike force. Then I waited for the next fight after that. And then that, that's just kind of how things progressed. Okay. Why it was only one off? I don't know. That's a good question for Scott Coker. I can probably ask him uh, when they come back to California because whenever they're in California, I ref their fights. Okay. So whenever they come back, that's actually a good question. You know what? I probably should. That, I'm actually going to probably text him later today and ask him. Okay. All <laughs> I right. That's never a question I ever thought of, and I never I have no idea. My answer okay. I, I'd be really curious because you had a good showing. And let's, let's talk about the – that's a good segue to talk about the fight itself. But – you take on Fallon Eco Vitale at Strike Force Payback in the co-main event in 2008. Uh, now, there, interestingly, leading up to this, your son Stone, I believe, had just been born about a month before yep. the fight, and you had beaten Misaki by decision in Pride, which thankfully was not in Japan, was in, in Nevada, so it wasn't you know as big of a travel situation for you. But just a week before that, and I think I believe you had just started uh, training with Extreme Couture, like right around that time, and and like I think you were working with Randy yep. around that time, so you know, you, you didn't get the time that you wanted to be able to train for Vitaly. I mean, you got a baby waking up in the middle of the night and you got to do your part and all that stuff. Um, but how, how did you feel like your prep went? Like, were you aware of Vitaly? I mean, obviously you've been around a long time. Was it something like something that you felt good about? You're ready to go. Or was well, just, I thought, man, I just got to get through. I fought a bunch of one. I fought Ray Cooper early in my career. Right. So right. right. Which is, how crazy. Right. How crazy is it? it was it his son that's fighting? I, I actually ref Ray Cooper third. Yeah. I ref him in the line. Yeah. There you yeah, go. So it's, it's you go. like <laughs> you, we knew the Hawaiians were on the radar way before anybody else did because we fought him so early, you know, it was just, and it was like, it's kind of like how Ray Cooper, the third group is now when he goes and fights, it's, it's like 25 people from Hawaii all travel, <laughs> right, the whole family right. travels. Right. So everybody is related over there by marriage. 
so it, it's weird. Like you'll, you'll be there and you'll, be, you'll stand there talking to, to one and you're like, oh, and, and all of a sudden another fighter comes up next to him and he realizes they're brother-in-laws because they married sisters. <laughs> and then his, the other guy's sister married the other guy that's another fighter. And the other, you know what I'm saying? So it's like everyone's all intermixed. They're all cousins. They're all, you know, all the, all the kids are nephews and nieces. And it's just like, wow, it's like, it, this is like a real big family. It's a big deal. So we knew about Nico way before because he had been fighting for a long time. Um, he fought a bunch of guys that we'd already been paying attention to. It's like, you kind of knew, but it wasn't like, like I said, this is a different era. You know, it wasn't like today you hop on YouTube real quick and you can see 15 fights from this guy or get a, a fight pass or ESPN plus and see all these, all these fights from these guys from back in the day and be able to know, Oh yeah, I can, I can do research on them. You kind of knew about the record. You'd ask the guy he fought, you know, like, like if you fought Phil Baroni, we just call Phil, what was the fight like? What happened? You know, stuff like that. That's what we would do. We didn't have the tape like we do now. We didn't have the ability to go watch all these guys. So we knew about Nico for sure. And, you know, coming from Hawaii, you automatically put the stereotype on it. Coming from Hawaii, he's going to be a, he's gonna be a bang of a bra. He's going to come out there heavy with his hands. He's going to try and crack all day. You know for sure he's going to hit you. He's going to have decent ground game. Okay, it's going to be it's gonna be decent because back then it wasn't like now where, where the gi guys are all doing stand-up, right? Before it used to be you were stand-up or you were gi when you were in Hawaii. And it was like the two didn't cross over. It's very... Uh, very uh, uh, camp oriented. I'm from this camp. We only do, we only grapple. I'm from this camp. We're basically strikers. Like that's how the game was. But then the Jesus Lord team, which, which Fatale was on and, and Cooper and, and uh, Ronald John and all those guys were all under, underneath the same thing banner. They did everything. Bobby O, the head coach, he made them do everything, which is Rachel Osovich's father started, started Jesus Lord team. And he it was like this whole bit, this whole bit. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. So, so these guys have been around for a long time. So yeah, we knew who he was. We knew he was going to be tough on his feet. We knew he was going to be tough on the ground. And it's going to be a hard put away. Just like Ray Cooper was a hard put away. It's just, you, you can hit him a hundred times. He's still going to keep coming at you. You know, they're not going to stop. They're not going to back down. Now, adding the factor, I got a new, I got a new son in the house. And adding the factor that I'm at altitude. And at the time I'm living in Vegas, which is below sea level. So hey. we, we get into that second round. I'm like, okay. <laughs> I got nothing left. Now you see me leaning on him. I'm kind of home against the cage. You know, my hand is swiping up across the back of the cage just in case they need to grab onto it if he moves too quick. Like I'm doing all the cheats I possibly can to get a break. Like every little thing I can do, you know, and it's, it's cause you get tired and he's not quitting. He's not backing up. He's not going away. And it makes you start to get concerned. When you get that tired, you're like, I can't put this guy away, but I'm getting exhausted, which means he can put me away here relatively quickly. So you got to be careful. And uh, that's basically how the fight went. And then I got exhausted and finished the fight and got the, got the unanimous decision. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, that first round, you showed off some really good striking. I mean, you, you mentioned you can hit him a hundred times. You probably hit him a hundred times. I mean, you were a lot of, <laughs> a lot of standing elbows, a lot of, a lot of, just a lot of strikes. And then you started mixing in some takedowns as the fight wore on. And I'm sure, like you said, it was, you're getting tired, but as tough as he was, I mean, Vitaly offered very, very little during the fight. He didn't hit you. He, he caught you a couple of times, but he didn't really hit you very much. Were you surprised very. at how little he, he offered very. back? And that, and that really goes to, and this is the one thing I tell all new guys coming into the sport now. Oh, I've never, I've never boxed before. I never boxed before. Okay. So the first thing you want to learn is how to throw a one, two, three, four. That's the first thing someone wants to learn when they go into boxing. They're like, okay, I kind of get it. Cause you've seen boxing. You want to do it. All right. That, that's cool. When, okay. Now I'm, I learned how to do a one, two, three, four. I want to spar. No, you're not, you're not, no, you're not ready to spar yet. How are you going to stop a punch? Well, I don't need to because I'm going to hit you so much. Well, you got to learn your defense. So that's what got me through the later parts of my fight was my defense. As long as my defense was tight, I couldn't get hit. And that was the biggest thing. When I changed boxing coaches, I lost that ability for defense. And that's how I ended up my last two fights in the UFC getting TKO'd. It's because my I, it was all 
striking oriented. It wasn't defense oriented, you know? And so that's the thing is like, when you learn your defense is good, people can't hit you. You can go play all day long. When I fought Laverne Clark in WFA, he had, he had just won like four boxing fights in a row. Like he, this guy was a legit pro boxer. And all of a sudden now he's, I got to fight this guy on my feet and he's long and lanky. I can't get inside to take him down. It was really hard. And so I was like, I got to fight this guy. And I just said, okay, I can't get hit. I cannot let him touch me. So I don't let him touch me. Same thing with Nico. I cannot let him touch me. If he touches me, I'm going to go to sleep. So I can't let him touch me. And that's just basically what I did. And so every time he'd miss or give me half an opening, I'd throw a couple peppering uh, punches in and get out of the way. And we got tied up, then I throw some elbows in. That's just kind of how I did it, hoping that I wouldn't ever get caught with any of it. It was like nervous energy almost. Well, it, I mean, it worked. Obviously, you got the decision when I mentioned to my co-host on the, the show when we covered that event uh, recently. I thought your, your strikes kind of reminded me of, of, of the Diaz brothers a little bit, where it was, like you said, a lot of peppering stuff. It was You, didn't, you weren't loading up and throwing a lot of big punches. And, you, you know, being in Colorado, like you said, it was – uh, you had to deal with altitude and all that stuff. So I'm sure you were saving up and, and all that stuff, but it, it worked out well. And, and you got your hand raised and kind of talked some smack about yourself afterwards, said your striking looked like crap and stuff like that. But well, when was, you hit somebody a hundred times, you expect them to go down, right? You absolutely <laughs> expect them to go down. So me saying that was completely genuine. I was like, my striking must suck. Cause I hit this guy a hundred times. And he didn't go away. So there's obviously something wrong. I'm not turning my hip. I'm not getting my heel up. My shoulders aren't rotating. I'm doing something wrong. I couldn't figure it. I couldn't figure it out. Well, it was, it was enough. Like we said, and that was, that was your last strike force fight. That was actually his, he'd fought for strike force a few times. That was his last one with the yeah. promotion as well. But, uh, but you know, co-main and, and you got a big win and, and, you know, it was good. It was on to the next one, but, and we, we got a few questions left and then we'll wrap things up. But after that fight fight, you had a handful more, uh, you got a couple more in the UFC. Like you mentioned, you retired in 2011 with a 21 and nine record, but your career is, has been about a lot more than just fighting. I mean, you've done radio, including, I remember tag radio back in the day with a fr- friend of the show, gorgeous George Garcia, you've done commentary you worked for pride doing commentary for them for a while you've gone into refereeing as we've discussed you you became which you became only the second ufc fighter besides dan the b Severn to come back and ref inside the octagon which is awesome uh you worked pro wrestling a little bit and then you've you know you've worked extensively in film and tv as as an actor and a stuntman so just one question on all of that what what activity do you get the most out of which one of those do you really enjoy the most you didn't even mention it Oh, is it the scuba diving thing? No, Did well, I no, that, that? that gives me some pleasure too. The most, like, <laughs> I sail a lot. Like, I, I competitively sail, but right now okay. there's no races because of, of COVID, but I sail a lot. And that's kind of the thing that that's the most relaxing, most amount of fun for me. Um, the most amount of, of uh, uh, consummate joy is whenever I'm on the water. It's kind of my thing. Like everyone's got regrets in their life. And, you know, I, and I've, obviously I have a few big ones uh, like, like everybody else does. Once you get to my age, you got a bunch of b- really big regrets. But one of my big regrets is never joining the Navy and never going into the military and, and, and running that route. Like everyone else in my family, I went in the military. Now, I was someone in the military, I probably wouldn't have fought. So I, wouldn't, I probably would have went in right after I got out of, got out of college and I would have went in as an officer because I would have went through ROTC and then I wouldn't have ever fought because I would have been on a different career path. But for the amount of time I spent on the water now, it really makes me wish that I had spent time on the water. You know, like uh, I was out, I scuba dive two days ago. Uh, we went or three days ago we went down for um, a 40 footer just a two two 40 foot dives and then as soon as I got up I was like oh anybody want to go anybody want to go sail like I was immediately want to go back in the water again so it's kind of one of the things that gives me the most but honestly now because I do everything so much and everything that I love to do like <clears throat> when you show up on set like right now I'm attached I can't talk much about it because the way Disney does their shows but <clears throat> I'm on this Disney show it's in the Star Wars universe 
And every day I show up on set, I do something different. Every day. It's something completely different. Even though I see the same people, the same director, the same, you know, it's all the same stunt uh, coordinator. I see all this, you know, I see my, it's all my same buddies I see every day, but we're doing something different. You know, every day is something different. Different fight scene, different burn scene, different shooting scene, like everything's different. So you walk into a situation like that where every day your job that you get paid for is to do something completely different. It's pretty cool. You, get, you have a lot of fun doing these things, man. And, it, and it's like my life in general is what I love the most. There's a couple of things I'd like to improve in my life. I'm sure like everybody else does, I'm sure. But they're, they're, it is really just my life is what gives me the most amount of pleasure. Honestly, at the end of the day, I'm like, every day I have a good day. I mean, there, there's not a day I can think of in recent history that I was like, wow, this day really sucked. This is really a bad day. Even if the day on set sucks, even if the sailing sucks, even if there's no fish out, you didn't see anything and the visibility underneath the water is really bad when you're scuba diving, it's really horrible. It's still a good day. You're like, I'm still doing stuff that most people in the world can't do. You know, you know anybody in, in, in like uh, uh, Las Vegas, they're not scuba diving in the ocean, they're landlocked. You know, I, I get to do that almost anytime I want to. I got five guys I can call them, like, anybody want to go scuba diving? We can all go. You know, it's, it's super easy for us. And that, it's that kind of thing. I want to go sailing, I call two guys. Like, hey, you want to take your boat out today? When I'm doing it, you want to take your boat out? Yeah, let's take our boat out. We'll go out for a couple hours. Like, my life in general now is at a stage, it's at a point where everything I do, I do it basically uh, uh, because I want to. There's no, there's no have to anymore in my life. I don't have to take a fight because I need to pay the bills. I don't have to do this thing because it, because it, I need some way to do this other thing, right? Now I'm at a stage in my life where everything I do is something I want to do, and I can have fun with it. It doesn't matter what it is or how we're doing or you know, how far we're going or what's going on. It's all fun. Everything's fun. I want to get to that point. So if you can uh, write a book and, and put it out there, so out there that would be great. <laughs> I, I've actually, I've actually thought about writing a book, but I'm a horrible writer. Oh, well, I'm, I'm Hey, they have go, there are ghost writers out there for a reason, man. You've, you, you're, yeah, but I've always made fun of those people. I get your autobiography is ghost like having Loretta Hunt write your biography. Like that right. makes sense. Like I'm like, yeah, of right. course, have her write it. She can put it all together. And, and she's a great goes, writer on top of that. Knows how to ask the right questions and dig stuff out of you that you even think about. Like that's that's great for her. Like that's that's an amazing thing. But for someone to like, like yeah, I wrote I wrote these these five books. And it was written by you know this ghost ghost writer. Like dude, this sucks. Like that's just <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure if you want to do it, I'm sure there's ways around it, and you can still feel feel good about it and hold your your ethics and all that stuff. But you have an incredible story, seriously. And I'm not just blowing smoke. You really do have a great story. So thank you. I think it'd be awesome to, to get it out there. And I, I'll be honest with you. I knew, I thought you were joking when you said the scuba and sailing thing at the beginning, I thought you were just making a joke. Oh, no, I'm, and I'm, I'm literally working on my hundred ships. I'm already uh, licensed as a captain uh, for um, uh, OUPV, but I'm working on my hundred ton license right now. So I have another Jeez. exam in February to finish up my hundred ton license. And then uh, my dad at 55 years old, switched careers and became a ship's captain. It was a 200 ton captain until he retired. Wow. So it was like he was all over the world running boats. And it's just, it just one of the things that kind of he raised me on a sailboat when I was little. I raced with him every from the time I was 12 to about 16. I would race with him every Tuesday and Thursday nights um, uh, in the summertime. And it was just one of the things I fell in love with. And still, and we went, moved to Hawaii. I fell back in love with it again. I stopped for a long time. I stopped when I went to college because Oklahoma doesn't have much sailing. It's late sailing a small boat, but nothing that really interests me. And I was wrestling, obviously. Then, you know, when I moved to California the first time after college, I was uh, only concentrating on fighting. So I really wasn't, I was on the beach, but I wasn't in the water per se, right? And then we moved, to, then I moved to Vegas for 10 years. So there's no real sailing in Vegas. So I was kind of taken away from it. Then we moved to Hawaii to work on uh, Hawaii Five O, and I got back into sailing and that became, became another passion. The problem is that all my passions <laughs> cost me money. I was going to say, they all sound pretty expensive. <laughs> yeah, that costs a lot of money. 
<clears throat> except for, you know, except, you know, roughing, roughing is a passion. doesn't right. pay much. I do make a little bit of money, but it's not like you're not making a living off of it. Yeah. Right. Especially right. now. I mean, there's no, I'm going to Dubai to do, uh, uh, um, the UAE warriors card in Abu Dhabi, uh, in January. I'm going to go cover both those fights. So I'm flying out to go two cards. Cause Mark Goddard usually does it, but he's got to be on fight Island for the UFC. So oh, okay. his, his move will make, gets me going. So whenever he moves off to, to fight island i get to go in and cover the fights that, that's okay. kind of the exchange rate so i get to ref a little bit uh, right now i'm not refing like herzog and, and beltran and and uh beltran i think just got his license in nevada so he'll be on the ufc card here before too long too uh in nevada and, and herzog obviously refs all of them and, and herb dean those guys they get traveled so they're refing all the time i'm definitely not doing that much but i'm getting I'm getting a few reps uh, uh this year this will be my fourth fourth time these two fights i've already done two, two and i got two more so not bad we need to get you licensed for the ministry or something. So we can just fully round you out and, and you have zero time to do anything else. I, I used to be uh, I used to be an ordained minister. So I could do weddings. Were you, were you really? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I got a day for one of my buddies. So we get married and then I did like five or six weddings Jeez. and I let it expire. I mean, it, yeah, it's a gimmick. It doesn't mean it's nothing. Yeah. Well, it, it's just, yeah, <laughs> it's fun. It was fun to do it. It was fun to do it. When it was happening and I made it fun for my friends, but really I don't, it's nothing that uh, okay. it's up my angle. So. All right. All right. Well, we got just a couple of questions left. I, I, one of the other things I wanted to ask you about is your time in TNA. You, you worked a match with AJ Styles. It wasn't well-received, obviously. Uh, I remember watching it just thinking, man, this is not how this should be going, but it was not surprising to me that you got into pro wrestling at all with your ability to talk. Uh, were you, did you grow up a wrestling fan? Do you wish oh, you'd yeah. done more with yeah. that? Like kind of talk about that experience. Yeah, that was a management problem. My management screwed that up. They completely screwed that up. That was their fault. And they didn't, like I said, I let your team, you let your team do what the team's supposed to do. And they didn't do the right job. And they, they totally screwed up. I would stay with, with uh, Dixie Carter for a long time. And I was talking to a lot of the guys. And the reality of it was is that um, I'm, I'm a much better manager than I am a wrestler. So I would have been more of a Jimmy Hart style. You know, oh, you would have been great. Of great man. Heenan, like, yeah, you way better great. at that game. Yeah. And that was what I wanted to do. That's really what I wanted to move into. And then management was kind of like, my manager did something. And they got an argument with TNA's management. And then that was the end of it. And I never got called back in again. That sucks. I know it was horrible, I, but I absolutely would have stayed with him for sure. Would have stayed with him in, in that capacity. And two, it doesn't. I don't get hurt. I can still wrestle. I mean, I can still fight, right? And do a couple run-ins where you know, hit a guy with a stick or smack a guy in the face or you know a little ball shot and get and then slide back out of the ring. But do most of my stuff on the outside talking would have been the better feat. Uh, and I still would have been able to fight without having to risk getting injury. I and mean, that's one of the things that I had Scott Diamore, my my uh, my wrestling coach, was working with me. Is like you had to be real careful about how he would do stuff with me because I couldn't get injured because I'm still training for a fight as I'm practicing pro wrestling. And so it's just this really weird cycle, you know? Well, D Moore is one of the EVPs at impact. So maybe, yeah. uh, you know, who knows? And we saw, I just did a, I just did a thing with him and uh, uh, Moose. Oh, when I was, when I was starting the initial coach for the Falcons first season, uh, I met Moose. I was down there. He told me he wanted to get into pro wrestling. When he retired from the NFL, he called me. He was like, I really want to get into pro wrestling. I'm like, call this guy, Scott, and see what happens. And then now he's like the oh, guy. He's like look Mr. at Impact. that! Look at yeah, that! Yeah. All right, paying it, paying it forward. That's all. Awesome. Oh yeah, always, always. You know, if you don't pay it for, what's the point of this life? You're not going to help somebody else to get over. Look, there's enough work, and this happens a lot in stunts. I'm, I'm gonna pull back the curtain for you real quick. So when you like, you know, Wonder Woman 1984 just came out, right? So there's a lot of female-oriented stunts because of the, the Amazonians. They were fighting over positions to be on that to be on that movie. Like people were fighting each other friendships were getting broken up to be on that to be on that show like this this is where this is the state of what people are like right now like they were they were 
a person that you were friends with for 15 years, you were bad mouthing her. So to get you a job instead of them getting a job. I'm like, that's just, that's just garbage. That's just garbage. There's enough work for all of us. There's enough space for all of us. If we all work the same. And yes, does it cost me 20 cents? I make 20 cents less. That's fine. If somebody else gets another job, I don't care. I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to do something that costs me hundred percent of my money. I'll give up a little bit to let somebody else get a job. I don't mind. It's not that big of a deal. And there's enough work and enough space for all of us to work in everything that we do. There's no, there doesn't need to be any like super hard competitions. I mean, healthy competition. Yeah. You want to outright, you want to have a better podcast than Joe Rogan, right? You want to have better than Joe Rogan. That's healthy competition. But if you go out and start bad mouthing his podcast or, or talking negatively about it, it doesn't make any sense. You know, yeah. it's just like, I just don't understand that kind of concept. And believe me, I used to be that guy. I used to be that guy that was like bad mouthing everybody. So I get the job. And I realized one day like, Oh yeah, that's just stupid. There's enough space for all of us. Let's all get work together. You're right. You're right in the book, whether you realize it or not, just. There's going to be bits. There's going to be bits of me on different. There podcasts. you go. There you go. All right. Well, um, before we ask the final questions, uh, you know, if fans want to get in touch, go to franktrig.com and follow you on social media at Frank Trigg. And I noticed on your website, you can even get a cameo video yep. um, from you, which, which is pretty cool. Anything else? I know you got your hands in a gazillion different pies, but anything, though, anything else we haven't discussed that you want to mention as far as um, what you've got keep, going on? Keep watching my YouTube channel. I have a, I have a YouTube channel. Um, but it's under Triggs Inc., which is my company name, because I was trying to hide it when I first built it, and they won't let me change the name, because um, it was doing a lot of, you, do, you have to do a lot of auditions uh, remotely, uh, even before COVID, you had to do auditions remotely, so I would tape them on there and I'd send them in, and I wanted to keep it hidden, so that no one could really find uh, my audition tapes uh, and stuff like that, Okay. but, okay. but now I realize, but mind you, I'm, I'm an idiot, like I didn't realize you can just make that one thing private, and only people right. have to Right, it's not like your whole channel has to be private. Yeah, I didn't know that. <laughs> So that's what happened anyway. So, it, but I'm getting ready to start doing more videos. Um, uh, Jill uh, has been asking me to like do more about, Hey, the, the process of going from not being in school for 20 years to all of a sudden being back in class for, for captain's license, not being in school for 20 years, also being back in scuba class and taking advanced first aid and advanced CPR and kid first aid and kid CPR and learning all these things. All of a sudden, like how to, how to, how to relearn your brain. Cause if you're not used to being in school, and having to keep a schedule, it's really hard. So I had to like going through that whole process of what it's like and, and making the mistakes, you know, and then screwing stuff up and showing people, hey, look, you, look, you screwed this up. Like you got to show people that it's not, oh, hey, look what I did. I passed the class. Dude, there was four, five times I think I was going to quit the class because I couldn't figure this one problem out on chart, on chart plotting. Like I literally called my wife at work. It was like, I am quitting. I'm not doing this. This is not for me. I can't figure it out because I couldn't figure out one thing on chart plotting. It drove me nuts. And then when I finally got it and took the test, I got 100% of that portion of the test. It was like, it was like stuff like that. Like you got to fail to succeed. It's like, so she wants me to put more like stuff like that on our YouTube channel and more my, my daily life, like more stuff that I do normally that people don't really, I'm kind of private. And if you don't notice, like it's, it's, I, I don't really put that much stuff out there about myself. I kind of, kind of try to keep my life private where I live private, you know, and then obviously it's been really hard because on this Disney show I'm on, you can't do anything. We can't promote, talk about, show anything at all. Nothing. Like not even, not even the shoelace that we have, like they, they're all over and they watch your social media. They look at everything I put, I put out. Uh-huh. So like, if you get, if you get put out, not only do I get, get fined like $2 million, I get fired. So it's been really hard now because I can't really do anything at all when I'm at work, but you know, so that YouTube channel is going to have a little bit more of that. And then um, um, we have another thing we'll do a little bit later that uh, we'll step on a different social media platform, but I'll make that announcement whenever we're ready for that. But I got something else coming up probably next. Well, it's gotta be done within 10 months. We got to be ready to go within 10 months. That's our timeline. So, okay. Very vague, but okay. We'll be watching. We'll be <laughs> I watching like that. All right. 
Well, final question, and, and I like to ask this to most of the fighters I interview. If someone you know hadn't heard of Frank Trigg or wasn't aware that you were you know an MMA fighter uh, in the past, if someone wanted to watch one fight that you think really exemplifies Frank Trigg, win or loss, but one where you really like put it all together, character in the cage, etc. Which which one would you point them? Probably to? the Trudeau fight because I almost lost. He caught me at that triangle at the very end of the first round, and I literally went through my head was like. My son, Frankie, my eldest, was in the crowd with my dad. And I'm like, I can't tap in front of him. There's just no way I can tap in front of him because he barely gets to see me fight live. He barely gets to see me at all because he lives on the East Coast and I was living on the West Coast. So I was like, okay, let me let me do this. Let me let me do this thing. Um, let me try to find a way out of this. And I got out and went through. But it was very much, you see my head turn purple. I am, when he releases the triangle, there's like six seconds left in the first round. And I can, and I, you see just lay there. And I am, I mean, honestly, under today's rules, they would have checked on me to make sure I was still awake. Like, it would have been one of those, I was like, I was so far gone. Like, if he held that triangle maybe another two seconds, I would have been out. That, that's how close it came to me to that fight being over and going the wrong way. And then me coming back and winning in the second round. So, and then, obviously, had Frank Mir as one of the commentators, and Herb Dean was the ref, so it was like a good, it was a good night all the way around for, from a, from a, a, uh, uh, MMA, old school MMA kind of, mindset you're like i got one of the best refs is the ref i got a uh, uh, heavy former heavyweight champ came back is just coming back from an accident in my court you know calling the fight and this is a kind of a cool deal it was like it was, all in all it was a cool deal and the trash stop before it was kind of laid back because true was kind of a laid back dude he's very chill he's bj penn's um uh, jiu-jitsu instructor. yeah yeah that's right he was his jiu-jitsu coach that's yeah right. so he's, he's very hawaiian he's very very laid back and very you know hang loose bra he's like very cool so there wasn't much trash talking but there was some significant stuff that went on to build up and 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 some behind the scenes stuff like they were like joe silva came up to me in the middle of the behind the scenes was like hey can you beat this guy to make sure we can get him out of here we don't want him <laughs> in the organization anymore I'm like, what <laughs> like yeah you beat him he's out I'm like, wow, that's great. I'm going to ruin a guy's life by me beating him. Like, that's, <laughs> what kind of pressure is that? <laughs> Plus, like, do you want to do that? Like, he's, he seems like a cool guy. So do you really want to? Great guy. Really he's a do great it? guy. But you it's, did. It's like, it's like. You, uh, did, though. you did, though. He was out after that. I just looked at his career actor. He didn't fight the UFC again after that. <laughs> I was out. They wanted him out. I don't know why. Man. I, don't know, I don't know what he did to, to, you know, ask for that. But he was such a great fighter, such a great competitor. Almost took off at the time. Almost took off one of the best pound for pound fighters ever in the history of the game. Matt Hughes. He had him ran the ropes and 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 arguably could have beat him. Arguably beat him in the fight. You know, legitimately, it's like, I mean, it was crazy. It was crazy why they let him go. But you know, whatever. It's business. There's something behind the scenes that we don't know anything about. Yeah, and that's what the business is of the UFC. There's always some kind of business in there that that you don't understand. And and that and they they get it because they got all the they know all the all the A's and B's. And we just know a couple things. So it's just you know how it goes, but. You're right. It sucked for him. That was horrible. Well, we, uh, we didn't suck for you, uh, talking with me. Hopefully it definitely didn't suck for me talking with you. <laughs> I really great. enjoyed it. We talked a lot, a lot of business, a lot of really great stuff, Frank, thank you for being so generous with your time and your insight. And, uh, hopefully we'll talk again in the future. Yeah. Appreciate it so much. Thanks for having me on. All right. I want to thank my very special guest, Frank Trigg for taking the time to join us for this episode I really, really enjoyed talking with him, and I mean that. I That is one of my favorite interviews that I've done so far. I learned a lot, and, and it was just great hearing uh, hearing him and talk about uh, his his fights, his, his career, his outside interests, his movie and film work, all that stuff. I mean, it was just great 
getting his perspective. He kind of pulled back the curtain on what goes on behind the scenes in both the movie and the, you know, the MMA world. And it just, it was, it was great. So I really hope that you enjoyed that because uh, I certainly did hope that again, you've been enjoying our other episodes that we've been putting out. We've got a couple bonus episodes lined up. We spoke recently, I spoke recently with Dwayne Bang Ludwig. So that's going to be coming out soon. Uh, we have an interview with Raymond Daniels from Bellator. That's going to be coming out soon, but up next, we're going to be covering UFC destruction, which is a great fight card. It features the long-awaited Strikeforce light heavyweight title match uh, between Bobby Southworth, the champion, and he's defending against Hinato Babalu Sobral. So that's that's a very interesting fight to get into. Uh, Bang Ludwig is back on that card. We talk a little bit about that fight that he has with Eve Edwards in the interview uh, that that I'm going to put out before too long. Uh, there's a Joe Diesel Riggs is on that card. Luke Stewart. There's a bunch of bunch of familiar faces on that card. So I'm looking forward to getting into that. Hope that you're looking forward to it as well. And then after after that, we are going to be talking with Babalu Sobral himself. I have, I've actually already spoken with him. Very, very intriguing and revealing and honest interview. Talks about his fight career. He talks about getting released from the UFC and con- after that controversial win uh, over David Heath. He talks about the fight with Bobby. He also discusses what he's dealing with from a physical standpoint. He's lost sight in one of his eyes and just his knees are messed up and just all kinds of stuff. But uh, we, we delve into a lot and it's really a, worth a listen. So I hope that you will uh, plan to, to subscribe and download so you can get that episode as well. Speaking of downloading and subscribing, hope that you have already uh, subscribed to us through Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Uh, you can definitely find us. Uh, also, I would appreciate if you consider rating and reviewing us, especially on Apple Podcasts. It helps others find the show. Also, that you would consider following us on social media. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at the Hexagon Pod. Uh, so you can find us there. And then finally, I would love to hear from you directly. You can reach me at Phil at insidethehexagon.com. I would love to get your feedback, hear what you like, what you don't like about the show, what we can do better who you'd like to have on the show, et cetera, et cetera. You can find find me and give me feedback directly there. But with that, we're going to go ahead and ride off into the sunset. I hope that you stay safe and you stay healthy. We'll see you soon. Hey there, my name is Michael Laminato and this is Pit Pass F1, a brand new podcast that'll take you closer to the action of the world's most prestigious motorsport. From Monaco to Miami and Australia to Azerbaijan, Pit Pass F1 is on the ground and has you covered. Esteemed F1 journalists Julianne Serasoli and Chris Medland will take you inside the sport every round. They'll keep you up to date with the latest news breaking in Formula One and the most influential views shaping the world of Grand Prix racing. Every Friday, we'll be bringing you a track guide and race preview, and Chris and Drew will be in your feed every morning from Saturday through to Monday to keep you up to date on all the day's action on and off the track. So if you want to be in the know on the latest in Formula One, subscribe wherever you get your favourite podcasts and visit us at evergreenpodcasts.com. Pit Pass F1, a brand new show for Evergreen Podcasts.